talked about lean in the past. We've talked all these different phrases that you've talked about becoming efficient and making sure your plant is running as efficient as possible. You definitely, this is your one chance for possibly five, 10, 15 years to get it right, to reset what you've been doing in a building that's not efficient and to start over. If the sound of a machine tool removing metal gets your blood pumping, then you are Metal Working Nation. This is Making Chips, where we talk all things metalworking, engineering and design, production and tooling combined with business best practices, technology, marketing, news, and new media for manufacturing professionals. Here are your hosts, business owners, metalworking experts, and guys who get dirty on the factory floor, Jim Carr and Jason Zanger. Now, let's make some chips. Hello, Metalworking Nation. My name is Jason Zenger, and I'm in the studio here with my good friend, Jim Carr. Hey, Jason. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's getting dark outside, but the weekend is upon us. Yeah, it is. We're getting close. Yeah. So we're recording episode 17, which is Industrial Real Estate Strategies. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good one. I think there's going to be a lot of good information here. Yeah, and we've got in the studio with us, Michael Magliano. Did I pronounce that correctly, Mike? Correct. All right, well, welcome. Let me introduce Michael. Michael is a licensed real estate broker. He specializes in industrial real estate with Cushman Wakefield. Some of Mike's tasks are project assessment, market analysis, marketing real estate, of course, and negotiating leases. Did I miss anything, Mike? Uh, don't forget sales. And sales. Do you sell real estate? I'm kidding. <laughs> Try to. That's so great. before we get into this episode, yeah. um, Jim, do we? I think I was supposed to come up with some manufacturing. Well, I was going to, yeah. Why, Jason, do you have any good manufacturing news that you'd like to share with our listeners? I do. So I actually retweeted this a while ago, but there was a manufacturing conference that you know kind of came across my Twitter feed, and it asked the question of what do manufacturing workers want from their employer. And do you know do you know what it was? I don't remember if I told you this or not. No, let's define this demographic that you're talking about. Are you talking about like machinists in the shop? Are you talking no. about well? Are you talking about the blue collar staff? We're, we're just talking about your just overall general manufacturing workers in a plant. It could be a machinist. It could be and another. Then, no, no, no. Somebody in a factory. Okay. So it could be machinist. It could be somebody that works for. This is general manufacturing. So it could even be like you know somebody works in a food plant, anything like that. And they asked them you know a variety of different things that they wanted from their employer. And one of them was by far and away the, the most popular. They wanted transparency. So they wanted that's to- That's good. Yeah. That, you know what? That's the new word that everyone says that. Yeah. So let's define what we believe that they want of transparency. Do they want to know what their coworkers are making? I don't think that it's that. I think that what they want is that they don't want to just come into work and be assigned a task and just, you know, without really understanding the direction of the company, what they're expected to do. They really want to have an understanding, like some clarity around their role in the big picture. They want to know what the big picture of the company is. I get that because I'm trying to integrate that style in my shop too. I like to tell people, I like to tell everybody what's really going on and delegate some responsibilities, which is a future podcast, and to give them a little bit of accountability. 
in the yeah, day. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Because, you know, if you give them that, they're going to have to show up and make it happen. So Yeah, but I think being as clear and transparent with them with what you expect from them is, is very important. And they also want to know how they're being graded. So, you know, when we were all in school, you know, we knew from the teacher we're going to be graded on math, science, reading, and we're going to get an A, B, C, D, or F. I think that um, everybody out there wants to understand how they're being graded, what the parameters are, and how they're doing. Let me ask you, do you have employee transparency at your company and to what level if you, if you want to share that well, no, information no no i mean them. you know what we're try one of the things that we are trying to do at, at my company is that we are trying to be more transparent i don't even know if transparency i mean do you let them the look word. at the financials no of course okay. no, no 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 but i would say that that's a direction that i want to move into but it's something where you really have to plan that out correctly right. and you have to take baby steps towards I agree. it it's an evolution yeah there, but i mean sure. i would have no problem with that and i've actually read some good books that talked about you know being more transparent with your financial because I think when people, the more information that people have, especially as it relates to what their objectives are, the more successful they're going to be. And so the more successful that, you know, we're going to be as business owners as well. So yeah, that's all. That's really good stuff. I see a future podcast yeah, talking I agree. about yeah, that. We'll have to talk about this in the yeah, future. Take a note right now. Yeah. We don't, we don't want to forget it. So, so yeah, Mike Magliano's here. He's a good friend of ours. He's in the studio with us today. It's exciting to have him here. I think he's got some, I think he's got some good information to share with me personally and and our listeners because you know sometime in our business career we're faced with a move we're either going to have to buy a building lease a building or sell a building one of those things and you know it's a big deal we're talking a lot of money we need to do it correctly so um, yeah i mean my company we've been in the same place for ever basically as long as the company has existed and i would love to move but it is, it just, it stresses me out to even think about it. And I would rather open up a second location because it's just the thought of moving our shop. And I feel just, the same way yeah. too, Jason. I mean, like, oh my God, I can't even believe what it's going to take to physically move the equipment. Mm -hmm. That in itself is a huge deal. But for me, and we're going to get into this a little bit, probably into the meat of the podcast, but just how do I ready that building you know, that's really some things that I hope Mike can, can share with me personally and not necessarily in this podcast, but how do I ready that building? What does that building look like? You know, so anyway, welcome, Mike. It's it's really good to have you here today. Thanks for having me on. Excited. No problem. No problem. So why not, before we get into all the hard questions, uh, why don't you uh, briefly tell us a little bit about, you know, Cushman and Wakefield and what do you do in your day-to-day -day role? I mean, we know you're an industrial real estate agent, but do a little bit of a deep dive into what that really means. Sure, sure. The quick uh, 30 second, second elevator speech for Cushman, largest commercial real estate firm globally, privately held, every major and secondary market. What Cushman wants me to do is close deals. But in all actuality, you have to build relationships. You have to work on helping companies and leveraging networks. And what I've done over the last couple of years is I've built a network, which we'll get in, we'll discuss further, that helps a company at all different pain points within their business, especially with planning and the whole process and moving. That's the key. The day-to-day -day could be anything from trying to complete a transaction, trying to further along a relationship to you know, thinking strategically about where the market is, because obviously we've seen the market change significantly in the last six years. God, I know. It's been crazy. I mean, for every single industry, crazy. every single real estate, we've seen a significant change. I and agree. now that we're coming out of it, there's a different mentality. 
Yeah, so that was a segue into what my next question was going to be. What are the trends in industrial real estate? What do you see? You know, you're out showing people stuff. There's got to be something that is a resounding word or thing that's happening within the industry. And what are people looking for? Can you share sure. that with us? Yeah, the quick, easy word is shortage. Shortage of available quality product. No kidding. We came off that recession where there was buildings all over the place. There were fire sales on buildings. And now you're telling me that there's a shortage of buildings? You can't find buildings? Specific size range, types of buildings, there are shortage. Overall vacancies at its lowest point in over 15 years. Wow. So that's got to be driving price. Correct. Yeah. Lease rates, prices. That's why, you know, go into a little more. That's why you have to plan. So if there's this, you know, huge shortage, why do we still see a lot of buildings that have been on the market for a long time? Good oh, question, Jason. Yeah, it's all about industry trends. Think about in some of the older manufacturing districts, lower clear interior docks, just the way they've been constructed were for that type back in that genre. Okay. And, and, and companies are a lot more aware of the efficiencies that they're going to get from the type of building that they buy. So they're not going to purchase a building that doesn't have some of those characteristics that they're looking for. You have to be cognizant. Yeah. You know, manufacturing, when they walk into a building, a new, more modern state-of-the-art building, they're going to look up and say, what am I going to do with that, all that space, that clear height? We've seen right. a lot more manufacturers become more hybrid with, with stocking product, with more warehousing. So you have to look at it. Your eyes have to be wide open when you go out looking and saying what it takes to get me into the building and what type of building, how is that going to affect me on the way out? So if you have a building that is basically on a cusp of being you know, a redevelopment candidate, you have to understand in 10 years, 5 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever it is, you have to understand that what is the future use of it? I get it. I know I'm going to be skipping around a little bit because I've got all these things flowing through my head that I want to ask you that I, I don't know about and I want to learn about because... I'd like to get in a new building, you know, someday. But can you share with me what what are those tax breaks that you can get in a building? Like I know in in my village where my industrial building is at, I see the real estate agent, the signs that say they have there's a letters, what kind of a break? Yeah. What 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 is that, Mike? There's a couple of different tax breaks depending where you are. Obviously, each state, county, municipality has different incentives. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if we're specifically talking about our area, Cook County, okay. there's a 6B tax abatement. 6B tax. Can you tell me and our listeners what the 6B tax abatement means? Sure, sure. The quick definition is, is that it's a 12-year program. What it does is, is it helps Cook County be competitive with the surrounding counties that have taxes, sometimes even half of Cook County. So in the first 10 years, your tax base essentially is reduced by about 60%. So for our listeners that are in California or Ohio or Wisconsin, do they have similar programs like that? Or do they have different names than, um, than what you just mentioned? I'm not an expert on obviously each of those, but I would definitely, whenever you're looking at even moving or even looking at any other location or even the location you're in, make sure you understand what the local community, county, municipality offers. And whoever your industrial real estate broker should understand those things. They better. That's a huge yeah. one. So is that a strategy to look for a building with a 6B tax abatement? Well, it all depends. I mean, if, if you're producing sales tax and what you're manufacturing and you're in one county that's more than the other, you can go to the other county and obviously save money in sales tax and real estate taxes. So it all depends on... So if you have a real estate building that typically, let's just use hypothetical numbers, the real estate taxes are $50,000 a year, but you bought into the 6B tax abatement. So what are you saying that first year taxes are going to be? 
It's going to be reduced by 60%. 60%. But again, you don't buy into it. It's an abatement that you have to qualify for. The municipality, the village, especially here in obviously Cook County, has to approve it. And then it goes to the county to get approved. So there's specific regulations for it that not everyone qualifies for. And did you say that it's based on sales tax? No, I'm just talking about different incentives out there. Okay. Okay. That's based on just, that one's more based on vacancy. So 6B tax abatement based on vacancy. Okay. So so if it's been on the market for a long time and vacant? That is the rule. It has to be vacant for one year. Okay. Uh That particular building has to be vacant for a year. Or if there's support from the municipality that supports it to go up the county and they give specific special circumstances for it. Interesting. Great. So you said there were other kind of tax breaks other than 6B. Can you share with us what those might be? Sure. There's other things. There's called a TIF districts. What does that mean? What does TIF mean? TIF is a tax increment financing district. So if you want to call it the quick and easy is, is that there's portion of your real estate taxes will go into a fund that will help either certain regulations that each municipality offers. So they're going to offer you revitalizing your building. They're going to maybe help you with moving costs. They're going to help you with redevelopment. They're going to help with different things to help find that perfect user as opposed to having the building sit vacant or to spur redevelopment similar to where you are right now. It's really interesting that we started out the show with saying that there's a shortage because I mean, I know for years that I've seen buildings in my particular area on the market for years and they've just been sitting and sitting, sitting. I have in fact though noticed that things are really starting to move lately. So I can kind of quantify or, or validate what you're saying, that there is a shortage right now. But the next big thing is we took such a hit on pricing. Mm-hmm. Are we finally starting to see a comeback in pricing? Are prices back to pre-recessionary numbers in the industrial real estate market? And, and it's probably subjective to what area you're in, but where are we within regards to pricing pre-recession. I don't know if we'll ever hit the sale prices that we saw pre-recession. Really? But we're starting to come back. I mean, there's been, you know, some buildings lost about 40% value depending on, you know, the characteristics of it. So we've seen that come back. But again, the problem is, is that to some buildings, there's no availability on. You just can't find them. So lease rates are back and sale prices are almost like a case by case because there's not enough buildings on the market that have certain characteristics. So people are starting to push Do you think sellers are holding off with putting their their building on the market? I mean, there's got to be a reason why sellers aren't selling. Is it because they expect to have more money for that sale? Because, you know, everyone got very bloated pre-recession. You know, oh, my building's worth $4 million and now it's only worth 2.5 and I'm not going to sell until I can get that 4 million that it was valued at before the recession. So is that kind of stuff holding people up from putting their building on the market or do they have debt? Are they underwater on their on their building? What, what are you seeing? Yeah, I don't think it's the case of holding off. I don't think really it's a, it's a financial matter. I think it's more of, of needs-based. What are the needs of the company? And the one main reason why we're in a shortage is because for the last four years, there was no new spec development. None. Got it. So spec development was and build the suits in a healthy market is is about a total of 15 million a year just in the Chicago region. You can we can talk more about nationally, but you know, just if you want to quantify it here, this is the first year that we're going to see that 15 million square feet of total build the suits 
and spec buildings. So things are changing and you talked about trends and evolution is that the machine shop building that was built in the 40s to 50s and the 60s, they're not making those anymore. Lower clear heights, interior docks, limited parking, you know, you can name a few of those. I mean, they're basically just designed for that type of use. Right. I mean, the buildings nowadays, they want them to be more multi-purpose. As you mentioned, you want to have an exit plan before you even buy the place. Yep. E-commerce trends are, are significant. I mean, the whole Amazon, same day, next day, that model, when you look on a national basis, they're trying to get product out as fast as possible. So the model and what developers are looking at is how can we satisfy more of that distribution? Because obviously, we've seen the manufacturing world shrink over the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. So the newer buildings are more modern for distribution. So when you look at that, and when you look at a manufacturing company looking for a lower clear building, what's the next five, 10 years gonna look like for a value proposition for that building? Now you mentioned before that it's just recent that you're starting to see more of those spec buildings. Can you define for our listeners what a spec building is? Sure, what it is is it's speculative development. Okay. It's, It's new construction, no plans for any tenants, and the developer is taking the risk of underwriting so many months of vacancy, and they think they're going to backfill it within X amount of months. So they're, they're going to build a million square foot building. They're going to divide it up and then start looking for tenants. All different types of sizes. We've seen anything from 100,000 to 300,000 to 500 to a million. It all depends on what market. Each market throughout the nation is going to have to have different characteristics. But the main thing that we see is it's the higher, the clearer, the better. And if you can have a building that's as flexible as possible with multiple uses and future uses, then that's what they're looking at. Are, are you starting to see um, more companies where at one point, you know, they wanted to be in like a large metropolis, like a, like a Chicago or an LA, and now they're saying, well, I, because of the new technology and transportation and everything that they're saying, well, I can be in this, you know, smaller town in Indiana or something like that. Well, good question. Comparatively speaking, if you look at just here, what's happening with our state versus Indiana or our state for Wisconsin, people are going over borders for incentives. So I and think what kind of incentives are those? Corporate tax, okay, personal tax, state taxes. I mean, you name it. They're offering free land in some cases, rare cases, and as well as they're literally writing a check to help them fund depending on the size of the company. So and that's for the very large companies, right? The, the larger companies. I mean, okay. I would, throughout the process, if you're planning to move, I would always, always look at each local municipality, your county, your state, and see what you can do to leverage if it's tax rebates, if it's training grants, anything. So where do you start though? I mean, do you, do you start by interviewing a real estate broker and assessing their competency? Or do you walk into the mayor's office and say, I'm thinking about moving into your town? I mean, where is the right place to start in order to determine whether you can get some of those incentives? Honestly, that's more of a lawyer. When you want to look at a lawyer that specializes in incentives. Okay, so that, you should look oh, for a, a, a qualified real estate lawyer. Correct. There's lawyers. Cushman does have a service for incentives. You can look at a couple different ways. A real estate broker, obviously, they can help you point you in the right direction, but they're not going to negotiate each step of the incentive. They'll help you leverage if you need a building in one market versus the other. But honestly, they're not going to be the one that's going to actually 
do the full scope of that. Okay. There's real estate lawyers that will specialize in that type of service. Correct. Okay. That's, that's that. good to know. Did you know that? I, I did. I did know. not know that. No. That's good to know. What I would like to know is how would an industrial business building owner assess their capacity and their space to see if they are really in need of more space? I mean, how do you really know when it's time to do it? You know what I mean? When is it time to say, you know, I'm at 10,000 square feet and man, we are just blowing the walls out of here. You know, the guys are on top of one another and not necessarily, I'm just using my words freely, but is there an assessment plan that you go through with your buyers to kind of convince them to do its time? My whole philosophy is planning, doing your upfront due diligence. And I'll get into that a little more in, in a couple minutes, but the problem and the challenge is that business owners are so involved with their business, which right. they should. They should be involved with growing the business, making money, figuring out how to save your pain points to grow to the next level. The challenge is, is that they're focused on that. And sometimes when they realize we have to move, it's at critical mass. They're already busting at the seams. They can't add that next machine to get that next client. So what really needs to happen is they have to be proactive. And it's hard for them to be proactive at times. Some of them are, are more receptive than others. But you have to understand what, number one, the move costs are going to be. I mean, that's key. I mean, distribution companies could is turn... Is that like the number one thing? That's move, number one. Move costs is absolutely move, number one. Without a doubt. Top of the pyramid. Yep. In my opinion, I think move costs are number one, the most difficult thing for a manufacturer to kind of get their arms around because it could be 50 grand, a quarter of a million, a wow. million dollars. I mean, depending on where you are in the manufacturing scope, you can eat pits, power, food processing. I mean, you can go through airlines. All airlines. Yeah. So, and, and moving always ends up being double what you plan for it to be, right? Yeah. I wouldn't say double. I mean, again, the whole point to be proactive with trying to plan the move is to bring in the right professionals to help you. Right. I would say two things. Bring in, especially if you're a machine shop, bring in a machine remover, electrical contractor, and a mover. And talk to them early. Don't talk wait, to them Don't early. wait until you're ready to, you know, to buy a piece of property tomorrow. Correct. Also look, you know, there's operational consultant. There's people who do different types of racking layouts or space optimization. Oh, good one. Talk to those groups because, again, they may tell you to just move the flow slightly, move a machine here, move a machine there, go to a second shift. Maybe you have an opportunity to expand the building. Then you bring a contractor in. So there's no manufacturer that is excited about moving. Yeah, I mean, we even work with one of our customers that moved in order to optimize where they were going to place their tool crib, you know, because it was it, obviously where their tooling is located is important. And, you know, that's an important thing to consider before you move, you know, just like you're, you mentioned your racking, your inventory, you know, have a vision for what the company is going to look like when you move into that new building. What also is critical is, as we all know, supply shortage of skilled workers. Right. That's why you stay in a large metropolis like a Chicago, like an LA, like a, you know, New York, um, because of the access to workers. I have a client right now. We held off and we waited for about a year till the building within three miles of them came up. Because again, they have 70 employees that have either relocated to literally within that community or in the surrounding. And they felt that if they would move anywhere further than that, they would jeopardize what they've put into these employees. Right, because they've invested thousands a and, lot of time. And, and then the you culture, go, yeah. And you go, and that directly affects value. 
what value is in terms of market comps could be different to the manufacturer that needs the building, needs to be in that area. So there's a value to each building to each different potential client or company. So we're jumping around a lot, but yeah. um, I, I do have a question related to when you're moving, maybe you're moving to a um, location that's a little bit farther away and you do want to retain your employees. What's the best place to start in order to retain those people that are of value to the company? That's case by case. You're not going to get everyone to move. I mean, it's unfortunately that happens. Have, I mean, have you seen some best practices that some of your clients have taken? Uh, I think being upfront and open with your employees helps. There's cases that I've seen where they've kind of had closed doors where not, you know, and then when it leaks out, people start leaving. So I think that's number one. Then, you know, there's different groups within different associations that obviously could help you find skilled labor. And like I said, as long as you're proactive, you can go to different areas. You can do due diligence on certain cities and villages. Are there more skilled workers in this area that you've seen? So, I mean, I think it's just trying to find, you guys mentioned veterans. So, I mean, there's multiple things that you could look for, but again, there's no, unfortunately, there's no easy answer. Yeah. I think you, you probably hit the most important one, which we talked about in the very beginning of this podcast, which is transparency, you know, yeah. being honest oh, with your employees about yep. what your intentions are. Yeah. So I want to shift gears just a little bit. We, we've been talking a lot about buying that new industrial building and figuring out when it really is time to buy that building. But okay. So let's say we've made that decision that we're going to buy and you're out there in the trenches every day looking for that building, waiting for that one to come on the market for this guy. What would you say to that person that's trying to sell his building? What do you see are some key things that people are making the mistakes on before they put their building on the market? I think one key thing that, you know, manufacturing, they produce different types of oil, stains, dirt. I think that's one critical mistake that some companies, they're not cognizant about how the building looks. So clean it up. Yes. So clean it out as much as possible. I've I've had issues where a simple stain was blown out of proportion by an environmental company. A I would, stain on the concrete stain, or a stain, stain on, on the concrete. It was oil from a compressor that leaked. There was no penetration into the ground, but they wanted to do a phase two and start drilling. That spooked the buyer and the buyer left. Luckily, mm -hmm. we found another buyer. And But I would say that the buyers today are looking for all sorts of information. They're looking for environmental. They're looking for, you know, what the load on the floor. What is the capacity of floor? Is it unreinforced? Is it reinforced? How much and how, how large of a machine could we put on here? So I think what you have to do is you have to make sure you're upfront and you have all the information to properly educate the buyer coming in and saying, this is what our building is, as well as making a good appearance. It doesn't have to be perfectly painted, but I would say you definitely want to make a look at it or make a run at almost considering your house. You want to at least clear have a show. Clear out a lot of... I'd the... say clear out a lot of stuff. And you know, for us, vacant, vacant building is always the best one to show. But again, in these cases where a manufacturing company is still operating and moving, it's almost impossible. Hmm. What are some of the most common mistakes or misconceptions that owners make when they buy a new industrial building. What do you hear? What's a resounding thing that's they're always saying? Like, I didn't know I could do this, or we didn't know they could do that, or what are the, some of the things and feedback you've been getting from your buyers? I think a lot of it has to go back to the the initial discussion or the initial topic was process and timing. 
I think when you have a company that's coming out of a lease, they have a drop dead date. They have a lease that expires. What happens is companies sometimes start too late and it's rushed. So making sure you start the process early is key. You can't turn the lights off on a Friday and open up on a Monday and expect for your machine shop to be running. No, it's impossible. It is. So I would say that that's number one. I would also say not fully understanding your needs, not doing the upfront due diligence, maybe bring an operational consultant, maybe bring in someone who could help you lay out the plant as efficient as possible. You know, we've talked about lean in the past. We've talked all these different phrases that you've talked about becoming efficient and making sure your plant is running as efficient as possible. This is your one chance for possibly five, 10, 15 years to get it right. To reset what you've been doing in a building that's not efficient and to start over and try to obviously grow into it. So I would say, you know, you always want to look at growth. You always want to look at the building and say, okay, in the future, what could I do? Is there extra land? Is there enough parking? Is there enough docks? Is there enough room for me to grow? Because again, I am not moving every three to five years. We do have clients that take on that but it's difficult. What about ceiling height? I know I know you mentioned that to me some time ago when you were talking, just on a personal level. What's the common height of a ceiling in an industrial building now? Right now, new developments are 32 foot clear. 32 foot. And, wh- and what about something in a, in a mid-70s or an 80s building? What, what's common around that? I've seen anything from 14 to 16 to 18 foot clear. And now they're 30? 32 foot clear are the new modern bulk distribution buildings. And what's the reason for that 32 foot clear? And again, the mentality of the developer is that there's more distribution within the market out there. So you can go, you can keep racking higher and you can get so many pallet positions into the building where it's cheaper to go up an extra four feet for a tenant as opposed to go out. To utilize that space. So they're assuming that the person that's going to move into that building is going to be some kind of distribution company. And, you know, a manufacturing company going into there doesn't need that, but they could potentially if they wanted to go vertical. We've seen a lot. I mean, that happens. And that's something that you have to keep your mind open to is that, yes, it's 30 foot clear. Yes, you're never going to use it. But again, if you're in there for 10 years, you own your building, you're a business owner, you have options now. Yeah, it's an investment. Correct. Correct. Now you can do something, you know, it's a sale leaseback. You need to pull out capital to buy new equipment, to become, you know, whatever the financing objective that you have. Now you can go to an investor, sell the building, lease it back. Now you have the proceeds for that, whether it's moving to the next generation and moving on in your business, or it's just buying new lines. I haven't bought an industrial building in a in a long, 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 long time, but you know, I have bought residential. How do mortgage rates compare when you go to buy an industrial building versus going to buy a residential? I mean, are they pretty much the same thing or does the terms uh, change or can you enlighten us a little bit about borrowing with regards to that industrial building? Sure. I mean, I think, again, going back to the team that you build to create this process, you definitely have to have strong teammates. And obviously, your bank or financial institution is is one of them. I would say that the terms for commercial or industrial are completely different than residential. Residential, you're locking in for a long term for just a conventional loan. Yeah, for commercial, you have like a five-year term and the the payoff is shorter. Correct. However, there's SBA loans, small business loans for companies. And what it does, instead of conventional loans that are 20% down and you're not locked into 
your rate for 20 years, the SBA, which is government-backed, it's a 20-year fixed rate. So that's on 50% of the loan. So a small business loan is 50%. They'll the, take up to for, 50% of the... That will be for the SBA For portion. the SBA, right. Then 10% will from the owner and the remainder from the bank. And the, the remainder from the bank One has... One more time, your, I'm writing that sure. down. 50% is SBA-backed. Mm-hmm. 10% from the owner. Correct. And 40% from the bank. Okay. And that SBA portion is locked in for 20 years. So think about interest rates now. And you're going to be locked into that portion for 20 years. I mean, there's... How again, do you qualify for an SBA loan? Is there a qualifying criteria? I think you talk to your bank. You, you'd have to talk to your okay. bank. I mean, it, that's they're going to talk to you about the different advantages and disadvantages. I mean, again, it's there's always different things to con, you know, consider when you're talking about SBA loans versus conventional loans. But again... I think that's a conversation you really have to dig in with your banker. But what that has allowed us to do, industrial real estate market, it has allowed buyers that have a significant move cost to also roll in those costs. So if you have a half a million dollars of move cost, construction, et cetera, you can roll those costs within your loan. So now think about, you know, instead of coming out of pocket for half a million dollars of your operating business, now you have money free to continue to run and operate and do whatever you need. Are these SBA loan rates competitive to like residential loan rates or are they a couple say, points higher? They're a little higher. I mean, I would say probably a point higher. Um, again, I don't track them as, as a banker would, but I would say they are a little higher. Commercial loans are higher than, than residential loans from what I've seen. I mean, there, there's all different types of loans out there that, you know, obviously you got to do your due diligence on. Well, we're just about out of time here. It's an eye-opening thing for me. It's I know I've learned a lot from Mike today, and pleasure to have him here. Is there anything else that you want to leave with our listeners, Mike? Just a little quick uh, send-off for them to think about, because you know, at some point in our careers, we we're always faced with the question: Is it time to move? It's such an arduous process to first of all make the decision, and then go ahead and make it come to fruition. You have to go into the process with your eyes wide open. And you have to understand that even though you say you want to buy, you have to do the analysis of lease versus buy. You have to understand the lease process and the buy process are a little different in terms of strategies, but you have to understand that so you can make the best decision for your business. So I think if you plan, you plan the process, do your due diligence up front. Not every case is going to be cut and dry where you have a year to start. Sometimes people get big orders and they have to react. But if you can plan and make this a you know, a seamless transition as possible, then it's going to be more successful. And then you're going to be able to figure out, okay, how am I going to shut my plant down here and go to the next step? Because again, some companies can't produce maybe five times the amount of product and then move. They have to dual operate. So I would say the whole message that I have here is make sure you have a strong team to help you plan this out because the trends change. We've seen them significantly change in the last 10 years. Huge, huge. Yeah. So make sure you just keep in touch with what's going on in the market because, again, that could sway. That difference in markets could save you a significant amount of money as you go through and keep growing within the markets or even change or even downsizing. So the, the bottom line is have a good team, plan well, and start early. Yep, I would agree. Sounds like what mom would say. Anyway, that's great. Again, it, Pleasure to have you here, Mike. Uh, we're wrapping up right now. And if you want to get a hold of Mike, uh, you can get him. He's uh, working with Cushman and Wakefield. That's uh, 
cushmanandwakefield.com. Or else, if you'd like, you can connect with Mike on LinkedIn. His name is Michael Magliano. That's M-A-G-L-I-A-N-O. I'm sure he'll be happy to connect with you there. We'll put those links in our show notes as well. Fantastic. You want to tell our listeners a little bit about how they can get a hold of us, Jason, and if they want to get any more information about making chips and what yeah, we do. Yeah, so the best place about- to go is is going to be makingchips.com. For this particular episode, you're going to go to makingchips.com slash 17, and it's going to you know have contacts to get a hold of Mike and also um, a couple points about this episode. Um, you can communicate with Jim or I. Jim's mostly on Twitter and Facebook. You can find me mostly on Instagram. So if you want to kind of understand the different personalities be- behind those different social media platforms, you know, we both bounce into each of those. But in general, that's the way it works. And just make some comments on the um, on this particular podcast. Let us know what you thought or if you have any additional questions make it on makingchips.com slash 17 and we'll try to get those answered i'm sure mike will be looking at that page too and he'll be happy to answer any questions that you have sounds great episode 17 yep we're done we're done bam this podcast exists to improve the manufacturing industry we want to hear from you the owners managers leaders and engineers from the metalworking nation what ideas do you want to share and what keeps you up at night We want you to take something away from this podcast that you can use to improve your company, your team, and yourself. So let us know what you want to hear, and we'll see you next time on Making Chips.